0: From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. On today's show, we're talking about two sex stories that both became pop culture events. So we're going to start by reading a little from one of those stories. It's something you might have heard before. If not, though, don't worry. I think you'll get the gist of it. The story is set in a college town, and it's about a woman in her 20s, Margot, and a man in his 30s, Robert. They meet, strike up a flirtation via text, go on a date, and wind up back at Robert's place. Margot sat on the bed while Robert took off his shirt and
1: unbuckled his pants, pulling them down to his ankles before realizing that he was still wearing his shoes and bending over to untie them. Looking at him like that, so awkwardly bent, his belly thick and soft and covered with hair, Margot recoiled. But the thought of what it would take to stop what she had set in motion was overwhelming. It would require an amount of tact and gentleness that she felt was impossible to summon. It wasn't that she was scared he would try to force her to do something against her will, but that insisting that they stop now, after everything she'd done to push this forward, would make her seem spoiled and capricious as if she'd ordered something at a restaurant,
0: and then, once the food arrived, had changed her mind and sent it back. That doesn't sound like a promising beginning for sex. But it's a very good beginning for a sex scene. And back in December of 2017, a whole lot of people read that sex scene and thought, Oh my God, I have had this bad sex. The passage you just heard comes from the story Cat Person by the writer Kristen Rupinian. It first ran in The New Yorker, and Kristen was the one you heard reading it. A piece of short fiction about a relationship in The New Yorker doesn't necessarily sound like the makings of a viral Internet sensation. But the story managed to capture a sense of horrifying reality about how it feels to be young and looking for sex today. The way Kristen described all the uncomfortable details— Everything that goes wrong between this man and woman and the way their date keeps going anyway. It struck a nerve, even for people who don't usually pay much attention to short stories in The New Yorker. Catperson became the most read fiction in the magazine's history. I
2: remember seeing a lot of people tweeting about it and talking about it, but I didn't automatically
0: think we should cover it because when would we ever cover a short story? Anna Silman covers culture for The Cut. She wound up writing a lot about Catperson— and she remembers watching as the interest she saw on Twitter became a flood of media attention.
1: Everywhere was covering
2: it. The stories that we did were some of our most read stories on the site that week. People couldn't get enough of Cat Person. I wish people read short stories
0: that often. Part of why this was so weird, aside from the sheer weirdness of a short story going viral, was that no one had heard of the author, Kristen Rupinian. She hadn't published any books. She hadn't been in magazines like The New Yorker before. No one had ever heard her name. She was a 36-year-old who had just finished up an MFA at the University of Michigan when she met an agent who had offered to send her story around to editors. And she took it and she sent it out to a bunch of literary magazines, all of which
1: rejected it um, politely, but pretty firmly. And that was over the course of the summer. And the one place that was left was at The New Yorker. I kind of had thought that the New Yorker had rejected it, too. They'd just forgotten to send me a rejection letter. <laughs>
0: then, rejected by omission. Yep.
1: The moment that she was like, they're taking your story, is probably as happy as I have ever been. And I almost couldn't believe it, and I still
0: almost could not believe it. Kristen figured that was going to be the big moment here, getting her story in the New Yorker. But in the days after the story went online, she started to get the sense that something else was going on. Like when she called her mom. She goes, oh, my God,
1: Kristen, someone Barack Obama follows on Twitter just tweeted your story, and she started crying. (laughs) And and that was the moment where I knew that something really intense was happening.
0: Most of the stories Kristen had written at the time were horror. They had supernatural elements, monsters, violence. But Catperson was frightening in a subtler way. It's about two people trapped inside their own heads and their own fantasies. The results are dark. This month, Kristen published her first book. It's called You Know You Want This, and it includes Cat Person along with 11 other stories. Some are realistic, some are more like horror, but they're all wrestling with the same ideas about desire and relationships. You know, it feels like it's a very pessimistic book in some ways about sex. Is that something that you would agree with, disagree? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I read this one early criticism
1: when only Cat Person had come out, and like they dug up one of my old stories in like a review that I had written. I forget how exactly they led up to it, but they basically were like, something, something, bad sex. And then they were like, one wonders if Rupenian would admit to the existence of any other kind. (laughs) And I was like, how have I gotten to a place where my public persona is that I don't even believe that good sex exists? Like, that is not (laughs) my take on the world. (laughs) But I do think the real answer to that question is that I think of the book— There's a ton of sex in it, don't get me wrong, but Mm -hmm. I think of it more as a book about power. Uh And I do think my take on power is deeply pessimistic and skeptical. Romance and sex were a theme for sure, but I do feel like they're the theme that let me take on the subject that I most wanted to talk about, which was interpersonal
0: power. That focus on power was another reason why Cat Person blew up the way it did. The story came out at the end of 2017, right when Me Too was dominating the news. Reports about Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Charlie Rose, and Matt Lauer were all over the place. There was a major public conversation underway about sex and power already. And Cat Person had something new to say. It wasn't about over-the-top, evil ogre-type abuse. It was about the smaller, more everyday ways sex can be bad for women. The word a lot of readers used for it was relatable. And yes, Relatable is a vague word that gets thrown around a lot. But I think maybe there's something especially intense in the way people relate to a story about bad sex. Here's this experience that everyone's had, but that's hard to discuss. It's private, potentially embarrassing, and no one wants to sound like they don't know what they're doing. So when you read something or watch something that makes you feel less alone with that experience, it's intense. I got Ruth Spencer and Allison Davis, a couple of my colleagues at The Cut, to come by the studio and talk about why people reacted so strongly to Cat Person. Here's Allison.
2: My close friends, I, like, know everybody they've hooked up with and, like, all the situations. But I was surprised to hear from so many who were like, yeah, like— I'm thinking about things I've done or who I've had sex with or, like, people i fucked. And I feel so bad about it now after reading Cat Person. Like, mm. how I wasn't connected and how, like, I didn't really want the sex, but, like, I just didn't. Like, she has that line about she couldn't, like, conjure up like, what it would take to stop it. And, I like, all of my friends were like, yeah, that's 75 to 90 percent of my sex life. And I was like, God, that's depressing. Yeah. I think that that was, like, the shocking thing that I thought all of us were having these sort of, like, fun, flingy, like— We're out there, like, fucking, like, we're carrying sex in the city, but, like, really, it's like, no, it's dark.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's so much darker. Ruth, meanwhile, had intrigued me with the promise of an unpopular and somewhat shocking take on Cat Person. You said you thought it was hot.
2: No! (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You weren't supposed to ask It's not that I thought it
3: was hot. I don't think Cat Person is hot. I, the story is about tension and power dynamics, like, as they pertain to sex, in my mind. And, like, there's a lot of shifting of power that happens. And the way that she gets off in terms of thinking about how turned on he is by her throughout, I kind of got into it. Like, there's points in the story where she is turned on. And those points in the story, I was, like, carried along with her. I was like, okay, I can see this. This is still good. I'm with you. And then, like, you know, at certain points, that same feeling of, like, when you have bad sex or when you have a sexual experience that is very bound up with shame, the feeling of, like, immediate disgust that follows where you're like, I just need to get out of here. I don't want to acknowledge this. I don't want to even, like, I need to close this window of this porn that I just watched. I can't handle this. Like, I'm just going to delete this text message, like, pretend it didn't happen. I mean, you were saying, Allison, like, reading the story, you were like, oh, this sounds like my text messages from last night.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or just, like, I mean, I was thinking, like, oh, yeah, that's exactly, like— Oh, this is so much, like, the current situation I'm in right now where, like, I've met a man and, like, we met at the beginning of December and because of the holidays, like, we just haven't met yet. And we've been texting furiously and I'm like, oh, I'm so in love because of our banter and, like, it's so, like, sexy how he thinks I'm so smart and how clever he is. And, like, we're obviously going to be a great couple when we finally are physically in the same space because of this, like, push and pull of banter. Yeah, it's not going to work
0: A big part of the story, and one that maybe didn't get as much attention as the sex itself, was the way these characters communicated. Catperson was fluent in the subtleties of texting. Here's Kristen reading again.
1: Soon, she noticed that when she texted him, he usually texted her back right away. But if she took more than a few hours to respond, his next message would always be short and wouldn't include a question. So it was up to her to reinitiate the conversation, which she always did. A few times, she got distracted for a day or so and wondered if the exchange would die out altogether, but then she'd think of something funny to tell him, or she'd see a picture on the internet that was relevant to their conversation, and they'd start up again. She still didn't know much about him, because they never talked about anything personal. But when they landed two or three good jokes in a row, there was a kind of exhilaration to it, as if they were dancing.
0: Of course, Kristen's not the only writer to describe modern communication, but she does find something particularly terrifying in texting, as you might expect from a person who mostly writes horror stories.
3: And now to Ruth. The time between text and response Mm -hmm. and sort of what your mind can do in the gap in terms of, like, thinking about you know, what does that mean? And then all of a sudden, you feel like you don't have any power anymore. And yeah. And that the other person suddenly has become, like, the dominant person in the relationship. And now your whole day is just waiting for a response from this person. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. That's so gross. But <laughs> 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 so true. Like, the minute you can sense—I hate to say it. Like, you can sense someone's energy shift. Right. And you're like, I can't say exactly what it is, but you know the minute through someone's text, you're like, you're no
0: longer interested in this. Is there an example of that that comes to mind for you?
2: Yeah. I was seeing this guy's um uh, wow. What was his name? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> you now have the power in the situation. Yeah, sorry. He was from Norway. Sorry, Norwegian, dude. And I, like, really liked him, and at first he liked me way more than I liked him, and then I was like, oh, I, I'm i responding to Santu. His name was Santu. I was like, oh, I'm responding to you, Santu. And so we were texting, and one night we were supposed to meet up, and he was, like, at a party, and he was like, I'll meet you after the party. And I think I, I can't believe I'm saying this. I might have sent him one too many texts to be like, what time because I'm trying to plan my night and, like, I'm going to dinner and the way he texted me back was, like, I'm at a party. I'll let you know. Like, that sentence is so benign. Oh, it's, like, exactly. chilling. get it. I it's, like, it's so benign and two days ago if he had said that sentence I would have been, like, he still loves me. <laughs> yeah. But the way he said it in that moment after I had been, like, a little pushier than usual, I was, like, no, nope, he's done. And, like, I
0: never saw him again. Yeah. Whoa. Like, you were right. It's so funny how, like, wow. yeah. instead of, Texting and stuff, like our phone dependence being evidence of our illiteracy or our slide into dumbness, it's like it's made us all close readers of each totally. other. Yes. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. yeah, like you have to be like doing textual analysis of texts
2: <laughs> <laughs> all the time. I feel like even in therapy, I, I like go in with my phone now and I'm like, can I read you this text exchange? <laughs> and we go through the text exchange and she's like, you're crazy. You're assuming something. And I'm like, you can't get away with it anymore. My assumptions aren't just assumptions. Like, it's understanding how people text and yeah. what it means when you yeah. say this and use a period and that emoji versus right. that emoji. All therapists need to get hip to this because it's not just, like, crazy assumptions yeah. anymore.
0: It's like a code of etiquette right. or, you know, it, it's, it's a, an idiom that people either possess or they don't, yes. you know? Then there's the question of endings. Suppose you spend weeks texting with someone, meet them in person— and then realize that you don't ever want to see them again. What next? That's a new question. And Cat Person was trying to
3: answer it. I don't know that we know yet how we're supposed to end relationships that take place mostly on phones. Yeah. When you've gone out with somebody once or twice, really, which is what Margot does. Yeah. What do you owe the person? What are you supposed to say? Is there the right way to kind of end it or not? Um, but, yeah, certainly, like, I've had that same well, what do Well, what do you do? What do you—what has been your solution? What do you—bad, bad solutions. No solutions, just problems. Me ghosting. Like, <laughs> I ghost. It's not cool. You're a ghoster. I know. It's not—it's not—I'm not proud of it.
2: You don't owe them anything, but, like, if there were no phones, you would say to somebody, I had a nice time, but I'm not interested, period. And that's all you owe them. It's not an explanation. It's just, like, a
0: gentle, like— Nah, dog. Try yeah. someone else. <laughs> yeah. Right now, everything seems like it's up for grabs. No one can agree on the rules we're supposed to follow when it comes to sex and relationships. And that's probably why it's so exciting to read a story that captures that uncertainty. It makes it all feel real. Like it's an actual experience you can point to and say, yes, this thing, this is what's happening. As opposed to just feeling like you're adrift with your phone and your anxiety. So when was the last time this happened? When all of a sudden everything was up for grabs? After the break, we're taking you back to another moment when all the rules for sex and relationships went out the window. The 1970s, the era of sexual revolution and second wave feminism. In 1973, there was another work of fiction that captured something about all that change and uncertainty. A book that made millions of women say, oh my God, that's me. Coming up after the break. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. In this episode, we're talking about stories about sex. We started with Cat Person, a case study in viral millennial sex fiction. And next, we're going to be taking a look further back to the sexual revolution. In the early 1970s, things were not said to go viral, but they could still take off in crazy and unexpected ways. And in 1973, a novel by a poet named Erica Jong became a pop culture phenomenon in a way that no one saw coming. It was called Fear of Flying. And it would go on to sell over 37 million copies and be translated into more than 50 languages.
4: The first agent I sent it to said, this book will never sell. And my first publisher said, oh, we'll be lucky to sell 5,000 copies. And I was terrified. I nearly went to the printer and took it back. Nobody knew what the book was going to do, including me.
0: In the last year, the words cat person became shorthand for a particular kind of sexual experience. Fumbling, awkward, not quite wholeheartedly wanted. The story helped give readers language for their sex lives. And Fear of Flying did something similar. Except, for Erica Jong's readers, it wasn't about squirmy ambivalence. It was about fantasy, pure, unabashed desire. Her addition to our sexual vocabulary was the zipless fuck. Can you define the zipless fuck for the purpose of people who may not have encountered that language before?
4: The zipless fuck is a fantasy. Two people come together. They don't know each other's names. They make love not knowing each other. They have perfect sex. Very rare for a first time, mm-hmm. and they never see each other again. And I say, in fear of flying, that the zipless fuck is a total fantasy, and I have never had one. And yet, the people who read about it seem to think that that was my fantasy, and that all I wanted to do was get on trains and fuck strange men. <laughs> so there you have it. Very strange. <laughs> It's very strange what you get famous for.
0: Fear of Flying tells the story of a young and horny poet named Isadora Wing, who gets bored with her nice husband, meets a handsome stranger, travels with him through Europe for a while, then goes back to her husband, at least for now. The main force driving the action is, Isadora wants sex. She thinks about sex a lot. And that was Fear of Flying's big revelation, that women wanted sex too their desire didn't have to be shameful or dangerous. Looking back from 2019, it's a perspective that still feels strikingly optimistic.
4: I have always wanted to write the books about women that didn't yet exist. And I felt that a book about a woman who was brainy and sexual and ended happily had never existed before. Most of the books that I read that were popular were books about mad housewives (laughs) who broke from their husbands and had one horrible, disappointing affair. (laughs) And then after that, they either went back to their husbands or didn't. And I thought that was so boring. And I wanted to write a book where a woman could be a brain and a body. A brain and a body. She could care about politics, she could care about men, she could care about writing, that we can be super smart and super sexual, that we can be writers and mothers and lovers. You know,
5: this book is not about sex, it's about freedom.
0: We wanted to talk to some women who remembered what it was like to read Fear of Flying when it first came out. So we called up Susan Rubin-Suleiman. She's retired as a literature professor at Harvard, and she went to college with Erica Jong. They were in a poetry writing class together. Susan was a senior. Erica was a freshman. And Susan says that even then, Erica had a palpable confidence in her writing. It was like she knew what she wanted to do when she was going to go out and do it. That was the confidence she later brought to fear of flying. And it was what made the book stand out.
5: this idea that women even had fantasies of, you know, great sex, you know, with strangers was, Something that good girls didn't, didn't you know, talk about, yeah. uh, right? She says, he had the cleanest balls I had ever tasted. I, mean, you know, <laughs> I had forgotten that. <laughs> that's incredible. You know, it takes, it takes a certain degree of courage, you know, to write yeah. like that stuff.
0: Fear of Flying came out in 1973, the same year the Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade. This was the midst of second-wave feminism. A class of American women were rethinking everything they'd been taught about sex and relationships. Whether they needed to depend on a husband, what it could mean to pursue their own ambition or pleasure, how they might shape lives unlike their mothers.
6: The book struck a nerve. This was a time of (laughs) rampant marital breakdown. There was someone who was going through what you were going through, had experienced what you had experienced— knew what your life as a female and then as a young woman was.
0: Today, Joanne Barkin is a writer, but in 1973, she was a student in her early 20s. She was already married.
6: When I first encountered this book, I was in, I guess what is called a starter marriage. And I I wasn't particularly happy. The assumption was that I would get married. The expectation in my family was that you would marry a doctor, maybe a lawyer, if worse came to worse, an engineer, (laughs) (laughs) and you would teach school while your husband finished his professional training, and, you know, then you would quit, and then you would uh, become a mother, and you'd be a housewife, and you'd never go back into the workplace unless you know, your husband was run over by a bus, and then, as everyone in my family said, you could fall back on your teaching degree. <laughs> this is not an exaggeration. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a few years back, Joanne reread Fear of Flying. She wanted to write about its significance. She had fond memories of how funny and honest it was. Then she actually went back to it, and she was surprised. She found the narrator kind of manic and exhausting. There was a lot of repetition. The whole thing was a little hard to take. But then she started asking friends about the book, and she realized she hadn't been misremembering. The book really had felt like that big a deal at the time. In fact, some of the women she talked to told her that fear of flying had actually changed their lives. Joanne put us in touch with her friend, Randy Morgan. Marriage
5: just seemed boring and um, confining. Yeah. We'd do things with other couples, and women would discuss recipes, and I'd go, oh, no. This can't be my life. This can't be my life. Uh, Along came uh, Fear of Flying, which was so amazingly liberating. It emboldened me to get a divorce.
0: Fear of Flying helped Randy realize that if she wanted her life to change, she was going to have to change it herself.
5: Well, I was working for the federal government, and I quit my government job. So it was sort of a double whammy. Yeah. I got divorced and quit my job. Wow. And took off and sublet my apartment. I had some money saved. I worked as a photographer's assistant. I started taking art history classes. You know, I was sending bar, or else I was in my little convertible driving out west, mm. camping in the middle of nowhere. I did all these things that had my mother and father quite
0: worried. Did you feel like you got to have the experiences you'd been missing?
5: Oh, yes, I sure did. Yeah, Um, not not sexual. I mean, he was the only man I'd ever slept with. Mm -hmm. So then I had 10 years of being single and I had plenty of uh, other opportunities. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But. But yeah, I just uh, I was free from having to conform to any notion of what a wife ought to be. I really felt like a free spirit. And in retrospect, I feel foolish. What do you mean? <laughs> well, that I let a book have such an impact on me that um I thought because a character in a novel could lead a life like that, that maybe I could too.
0: I feel a little bad for 1970s Randy when 2019 Randy calls her foolish, because I doubt it was as simple as thinking she could just go out and live like a character in a novel. Real life will always be messier and more confusing than fiction. But fiction can do something essential. It can drop you right into another brain, another life. A little while after Cat Person came out, there was actually another story about modern romance that blew up online. It was about a slightly older guy and a slightly younger girl who met went out once, went home together, and then had some fairly unpleasant-sounding sex. So, in a lot of ways, it was pretty similar to Kristen Rupinian's story. The second one, though, was about a comedian, Aziz Ansari, and an anonymous woman who had told her story to a website called Babe.net, which is to say, it wasn't a work of fiction, it was journalism. And when people read it, they immediately got bogged down in all the real-world questions it raised. Like, what really happened here? What does it mean for his career? What is Babe.net? And who edited this? All of which are fine things to talk about as far as they go, but they don't do much to help you understand how someone might wind up on such a crappy date, why they might stay, even though things were clearly quite crappy, and why they might have no idea of the right thing to do afterward. Maybe Cat Person was made up, but it said more about real life. Randy Morgan told me something like that when we talked. Here she is again.
5: I have always felt that fiction revealed greater truths than nonfiction ever could. Yeah. I guess because the author can manipulate the whole story, that he can, he can get right at the truth without having to, I don't know, real life is maybe a little too muddled with too many influences and factors to accurately see what's happening.
0: That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. Play right, play right, play right, play right. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie, Olivia Natt, and Peter Bresnan. Our senior producer is Kimi Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby, Naznin Rafsanjani, and Alex Bloomberg, who is now on book two of Ferrante. Mixing is by Emma Munger. Our music is by Haley Shaw. And our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarle, and Alexandra Sauser-Monig. Special thanks to David Krasnow and Jenny Ferrari Adler. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.